Welcome to The Free Will Show. I'm one of your hosts, Taylor Sear. And I'm your other host, Matt Bummer. In this episode, we discuss an argument for the incompatibility of determinism and free will, known as the manipulation argument. And our guest is Dirk Perbu. As always, if you have any questions for us that you'd like us to address in our Q&A episode at the end of the season, please get in touch with us through our website, thefreewillshow.com, or via social media at The Free Will Show. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Well, I'm happy to introduce our guest today, who is Dirk Paraboom. Dirk is the Susan Lynn Sage Professor of Philosophy at Cornell University. He's written extensively on free will and moral responsibility, including several books. Uh, most recently, an, an excellent book called Free Will, A Contemporary Introduction, co-authored with Michael McKenna and published in 2016 by Rutledge. So thanks for being on the show with us, uh, Dirk. Could you tell our audience a bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about your work and how you came to be interested in working on free will? So I was born in, in the Netherlands, and my father is a, a Calvinist minister. And in Calvinism, free will plays an important role, or perhaps the lack of free will plays an important role. And this impressed me as a kid. So when it comes to your eternal salvation, Calvinists say that whatever free choice you might make, or any human being might make, makes no difference as to one's salvation. That's kind of a striking thesis. And if you take this seriously as a kid, uh, you get impressed with this uh, this idea of free will and its significance for human life. But not only that, Calvinists also tend to believe that everything that happens happens in accord with the divine plan, and that's often paired with theological determinism. And Calvinists believe that um, theological determinism may be true, and a lot of them believe that it is true, but they still believe that some people are worthy of damnation for the bad things they do. And that introduces a puzzle, a very important puzzle for free will, whether compatibilism about free will and determinism is true. So that's how I got introduced to thinking about the free will problem. And I didn't do my dissertation on free will when I was at UCLA, but um, when I took my first job at University of Vermont, I found that my students were especially interested in that issue. And so I started working on it in in the mid-80s. Mm. Cool. So in previous episodes, I think it might be helpful to review a little bit. In episode five, we covered the consequence argument, and that attempts to show that causal determinism precludes the freedom to do otherwise. In episode seven, we discussed Frankfurt cases, and those are attempting to show that alternative possibilities are not necessary for the freedom required for moral responsibility. But even if these, if the consequent argument fails or Frankfurt cases work, the arguments that we're going to talk about today threaten to undermine the compatibility of freedom and responsibility with determinism. Before we get into these arguments, is there anything we should cover um, maybe conceptually or terminology-wise, that will help people understand the manipulation argument they're going to, discu- to discuss? Well, a couple of things. Uh, you mentioned you talked about the consequence argument. And um, so it was a presumption of the free will debate, um, say, before 1970 or so, that if determinism rules out free will and moral, moral responsibility, it does so because it rules out the availability of alternative possibilities to an agent. Um, But um, as you discussed in a later episode, Frankfurt cases aim to show that this is a mistaken assumption and that for responsibility, you don't need alternative possibilities. But, um, and I'm kind of a a fan of Frankfurt cases. I have my own um, iron in the fire there. 
So, um, but I still think that determinism and uh, moral responsibility, at least of a certain sort, and we'll talk about that in a minute, are incompatible. So um, I don't think that if determinism rules out more responsibility, it rules it out because it rules out alternate possibilities. Rather, it rules it out directly. And um, that's what manipulation, it's that idea that manipulation arguments try to enliven. Hey, now I got to um, make a remark about more responsibility. So I think that I think more responsibility is a very complex concept, and I want to highlight a kind of division in senses of more responsibility. I think some of the senses of more responsibility that we use in everyday life are forward-looking. So when a parent blames a child or a teacher blames a child, uh, they typically blame uh, in order to realize some good future goal like the moral education of the child or student. Now, that's not the notion of moral responsibility that I want to challenge. I think that notion of moral responsibility is, in fact, compatible with causal determination. The kind that I don't think is compatible with causal determination involves the notion of desert or deserving uh, blame and uh, punishment for having done wrong. Um, so it's a desert sort of moral responsibility. In fact, a, what I call a basic desert sort of moral responsibility that I want to target. And basic, if an agent basically deserves to be blamed, that agent deserves to be blamed just because he or she has intentionally done wrong and not for any forward-looking sort of reason. So it's basic desert moral responsibility that I think is incompatible with causal determination. And so when I, um, when I devise my manipulation argument, it's that incompatibility that I have in mind. Yeah, so according to this, this idea, this concept of responsibility, we can still maybe offer sort of um, the kinds of claims that we make when we say that somebody's moral respon- morally responsible, um, maybe some kind of blaming action or maybe even some punishment. But your thesis is they don't really deserve this. It's just that when we do this, it brings about good consequences. Yeah, that's right. Uh, maybe we should remind our listeners what causal determinism is, and then we can talk about why you think uh, the manipulation argument shows that moral responsibility is incompatible with determinism. So could you give a quick gloss of what you mean by causal determinism? Okay, you know, there are technical definitions, but um, maybe we can first talk about theological determinism, because that's one of the earliest types of uh, determinism to show up in, in human culture. So there's this idea in a lot of ancient monotheistic religions, that, um, that everything that happens happens in accord with God's plan. And um, some people who advance this view, for example, the ancient Stoics of um, you know, a school that originated in the, in the third century BCE in Greece, they paired this with theological determinism, that everything that happens happens inevitably as a result of the will of God. Okay, So God... Um, wills things to happen, and everything that happens happens in accordance with the divine will and happens inevitably um, as a result of what God wills. Now, um, there's a atheological or scientific version of determinism that's, that became especially popular in the 18th century. And uh, on a contemporary statement of that view, everything that happens happens inevitably as a result of two factors. One, the past, and two, the laws. So 
um, take some point in the past history of the universe, say a million years ago, add to that the natural laws, and on a naturalistic version of determinism, everything that happens subsequently happens inevitably as a result of the past in accordance with those natural laws. All right. I think now we could go ahead and talk about the two different versions of the manipulation argument that we want to talk about today. The first is the four case argument, which you, Dirk, uh, developed in some detail. So this, uh, as the name suggests, has four cases. Maybe we'll go through one at a time. Could you tell us what happens in case one of the four case manipulation argument? Okay. Um, so the idea behind this manipulation argument, and maybe all manipulation arguments, is um, Look, um, so this is an anti-compatibilist argument. Now, compatibilists think that determinism either is true or may be true. And let's take naturalistic determinism as our as our um, stalking horse here. Um, so everything that happens happens as a result of um, the remote past in accordance with the natural laws. Um, but yet, um, even though this is true, um, um, and as a result, all of human actions are rendered inevitable by the remote past in accordance with natural laws. Yet compatibilists believe that agents can be morally responsible in the basic desert sense for what they do. So if they um, intentionally act wrongly, um, they can deserve in the basic sense to be blamed and perhaps to be punished just because they've intentionally acted wrongly. Okay, so the incompatibilist think that, thinks that the compatibilist is leaving something out of his or her thinking here. Um, perhaps just setting aside the determinism in evaluating the agent's moral, moral responsibility. Because if the compatibilist took the determinism really seriously, the incompatibilist thinks, look, uh, those compatibilists wouldn't believe that those agents can be basic, desert, morally responsible for the bad things they do. Okay. So the incompatibilist thinks, well, you know, maybe the compatibilist is somehow going along with the practice or the tradition and can't think his or her way out of it. So you need something to kind of jar the compatibilist into seeing what the real significance of determinism is. And um, manipulation arguments. And you know, um, one of the uh, earliest manipulation arguments was advanced by Richard Taylor up here at University of Rochester back in the 1960s. Um, and so my manipulation argument is kind of an embellishment of, of his manipulation argument. And it involves not just one case, but four cases. Right, so the idea is to um, imagine an example in which there are these sophisticated neuroscientists that um, deterministically manipulate someone into doing something bad. And um, the hope is, at least the incompatibilist hope, is that uh, the audience will have the intuition that in that manipulation case, the agent is not morally responsible. Okay? And then the incompatibilist will attempt to point out that, look, there's no difference between the manipulation case and an ordinary deterministic case that would justify the claim that in the manipulation case, the agent is not morally responsible. Whereas in the ordinary deterministic case, the agent is morally responsible. Okay, um, so but you've got to devise the manipulation case just right. 
But since lots of compatibilist conditions on moral responsibility have to be respected because you don't want the compatibilist to be able to say, hey, look, you know, there's some compatibilist conditions on moral responsibility that aren't respected in the manipulation case. And uh, what do those uh, those compatibilist conditions I mean, David Hume says, look, um, like in ordinary life, we if somebody's coerced into doing something, we uh, excuse that person from moral responsibility. Um, uh, or if a person, let's say, is uh, irrational uh, or mentally ill, not uh, reasons responsive in the right sort of way, then we exempt that person from moral responsibility. So we have to make sure that the manipulation, manipulated agent in the manipulation case um, satisfies all of these kinds of compatibilist conditions on moral responsibility. But that's easy enough to do. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, so in my first case, I have it that uh, there's a team of neuroscientists that has the ability to manipulate uh, someone. And here I pick the, the character from the game of Clue, Professor Plum. So manipulate Professor Plum's neural states at any time by um, remote technology. And they do so by pressing a button just before he begins to reason about his situation. Uh, and they know that pressing this button will produce in him a neural state that realizes a strongly egoistic reasoning process, which the neuroscientists know will deterministically result in his decision to kill the victim. The victim's name is White. Okay? Um, and I, we imagine that uh, Plum would not have killed White had the neuroscientist not intervened. So, you know, it's, it's not as if being egoistic is out of character for Plum. But in this particular case, he wouldn't have killed White had the neuroscientist not intervened. Okay? But they do intervene. And all the compatibilist conditions on responsibility are respected. Okay? He's reasons responsive. He's not coerced um, in the uh, ordinary sense of coercion. Um, so what's your intuition in this case? Well, um, the incompatibilist hope is that the compatibilist and the audience generally will have the intuition that Plum isn't morally responsible because after all, he was manipulated by these neuroscientists and he wouldn't have killed White had he not been manipulated. Okay? But yet he satisfies all the compatibilist conditions. Okay? Now we imagine um, an ordinary case in which Plum is not manipulated but is determined in the ordinary sense. And then the uh, advocate of manipulation argument wants to say, hey, look, there's no difference between manipulated plum and ordinary determined plum that licenses the judgment that plum plum is uh, not morally responsible in the manipulation case, but is morally responsible in the deterministic case. So if you judge that plum is not morally responsible in the manipulation case, you're forced by reason to judge that plum is not morally responsible in the deterministic case either. Okay. Now, at this point, um, uh, rather than, uh, you, at least my, my thought 30 years ago when I devised this argument, was it would be nice to have some intermediate cases. Uh, some, uh, so that first case I described, I call case one. Case two is a bit different. So in case one, the agent is manipulated uh, locally um, but just before the action occurs by these neuroscientists. Now, you can also imagine that all the manipulation takes place up front at the beginning of the agent's life. And it could be by neuroscientists, or it might be by, you know, Leibniz. The philosopher Leibniz believed that human beings are spiritual automata. Basically, we're created by God, and we've got these programs that, um, as a result of, we inev- a result of which we inevitably do um, what the program dictates. So um, 
least this is the charge, that uh, by virtue of God's action of creating a human being, that human being, um, everything the human being does is causally determined um, by um, the initial conditions of creation and the agent's life. Okay, so that's my second case where you kind of pack all the manipulation um, uh, at the make all you, you specify the case that all the, manip, the all of the manipulation case, uh, occurs at the beginning of the agent's life and then uh, in the third case I wanted that to be a bit more like the ordinary case than case two so I say plums an ordinary human being except that the training practices of his community causally determined his deliberative reasoning processes uh, so that they're egoistic as they are in case one and case two, and as a result of which, in this particular situation, he's causally determined to kill White. Okay, so those are my four cases. What I want to say is that um, for any two adjacent cases, such as case one and case two, two and three, you can't point, the compatibilists can't point to any kind of principal difference between the two adjacent cases that would license um, a judgment of non-responsibility in the earlier case and a judgment of responsibility in the later case. So basically the non-responsibility, um, you can push the non-responsibility all the way through the four cases, from case one to case four, um, so that uh, your conclusion should be that in case four, i.e. the ordinary deterministic case, Plum isn't responsible either. Great, that was clear, very helpful. Thanks, Dirk. Um, maybe I'll ask here, whether someone might try to object by prying apart a couple of the cases. So I can see some people thinking there's an important difference between at least case one and case two, because on the one hand, in case one, uh, these neuroscientists are, they've, they found Plum sort of in the middle of his life and they come and they tinker with his deliberation or they make him more egoistic in his deliberation. Whereas in case two, if all of their tinkering is front loaded, they're not, intervening in his life and changing his deliberation process. Do you, do you see any plausible way of trying to pry apart cases one and two in this kind of way? Yeah, I think that, you know, um, you know, a number of psychologists have, have run studies on these manipulation cases mm -hmm. and, uh, and a pretty robust result is that kind of intentional local manipulation as in case one, kind of generates more reliably generates judgments of non-responsibility than loading all the manipulation up at the front of the agent's life. And um, so why is that? Like one mm -hmm. possible explanation is that like in ordinary life, like for example, in court cases, considerations of what happened at the beginning of the agent's life are seldom raised. I mean, maybe sometimes circumstances of the agent's upbringing are raised, but basically, you know, the nature of the, the nature of the agent, uh, uh, at the beginning of the agent's life. That's never a consideration raised in ordinary life. Okay, so that might explain that. Um, but look, um, I guess what I want to say is that a, a mere temporal difference between when the manipulation occurs is not a difference that, uh, in principle, should um, lead us to think that uh, an agent is morally responsible in the local manipulation case and not morally responsible in the remote manipulation case. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, temporal difference doesn't sound to me as if it could be a difference that should um, result in um, a variation in moral responsibility judgments. Mm -hmm. could, could one of the difference be that 
we inherit so much from genetics and environment at a very early age. So depending on how far back we stretch the temporal difference, it, it might make a difference. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're thinking that if you stretch the difference way back in time, then that makes a difference to responsibility in the following sense, that those differences, that, the, um, that what happens at the beginning of one's life or before one even comes to exist make less of a difference more, for more responsibility than what happens at the time of the action. Is that the thought? Yeah, or maybe we could even stretch back, you know, if you have a 30-year-old agent that you're manipulating, stretch it back 10 years. Maybe that makes a difference. But if you stretch it back to infancy, well, we've, we all have stuff that we get from infancy that we're not responsible for. Yeah. So I think that's there's something intuitive about that. But I think that once you think about it, it's hard to justify that difference. Right? It's, hard to, yeah. it's hard to justify the claim that, look what happened uh, 10 years ago should make more of a difference to one's responsibility than what happened 20 years ago. It's, um, you know, maybe we naturally tend to make those judgments, but I don't see how they could be principled. Uh, thanks, Dirk. So another way maybe someone could try to pry some of these cases apart is by pointing to the fact that at least in the first three cases, we have something like manipulation by intentional agents, the intentions of the neuroscientist or the community in case three. But in the ordinary deterministic case, case four, it doesn't look like the agent is determined by the intentions of some other agent. So is that a way that you see is plausible as of prying these cases apart? Okay, um, great. So that's, um, so Bill Lycan made this suggestion back in 1987. So uh, in case one and case two, we have um, intentional manipulation where we have agents that intend for the, um, the victim to act in a particular way. Whereas in case four, we don't have that. And case three, who knows, um, maybe you don't have it. Maybe the training practices of the community don't involve any intentions on the part of sure. the trainers mm -hmm. for the agent to perform any particular action. But anyway, so that would be a difference between case, cases one and two on the one hand and case four on the other. And the psychological studies do show that uh, if intentional manipulation is present, um, a non-responsibility judgment is much more likely than in cases in which there's no intentional manipulation present. Okay, so um, so one point to make is that if you set up the manipulation cases right, then then at least from the skin in, so to speak, the you want the cases to be the same. So you want the uh, kind of or at least the kind of immediate neural causes of the action to be the same in all four cases. Okay, so maybe that has some dialectical force, but. The key thing is to think up cases in which um, it's intuitive the, if the agent is not responsible, but in which there is no intentional manipulation. And so Al Mealy has this case in which it's a, um, um, it's a kind of freak accident of the weather. It was that uh, the agent act in the way that he does. And I've got this case in which it's some machine um, that um, is non-intentionally formed somewhere in space that does the manipulation. But at least in my, in, in my case, it's, I think we often think of machines that like sophisticated machines, like computers as having intentions. So I think the really good case is uh, one devised by Gunnar Bjornsson uh, from 2016. So he's got an example in which um, 
the agent, say in this case Plum, is caused to act the way he does, satisfying all the compatibilist conditions on responsibility by, by what? An infection. Now, the infection slowly renders Plum increasingly egoistic without bypassing or undermining his usual compa- uh, agential capacities. And um, Gunnar predicted that um, if um, subjects were prompted to see the agent's behavior, Plum's behavior as dependent on this cause, this bacterial cause, uh, attributions of responsibility would be uh, would decrease, would be undermined to about the same extent as in cases of intentional manipulation. And this turned out to be true. Now, he did the study on 416 subjects, and he found that that uh, the incidence of non-responsibility judgments was about the same as it was in cases of intentional manipulation. So at least we have a case like that that indicates that you know intentional manipulation isn't essential to the um, moral responsibility undermining effect of manipulation cases. Yeah, there's a real-life case of this, too. Um, I can't remember the the study off to, off the top of my head but there was a man who started to express pedophilia and then they found out that he had a brain tumor and they removed the tumor and the pedophilia went away so um interesting so we might have to face this sort of situation more often in the future this um kind of remote neural manipulation so one thing michael mckenna said about my cases is um, look, you know, um, this neural manipulation that takes place in case one is, is pure science fiction. So we have no, um, we have no intuitive sense of what's happening here. It's it's um, you know not part of ordinary life that people are manipulated in this way. But um, but uh, at my school at Cornell, there's a, a guy in physics, um, McEwen, and a neuroscientist Jesse Goldberg, and they presented a paper in in 2019. Um, in which they advertised the fabrication and characterization of a wireless implantable device for the electrical stimulation of neural tissue. And in the particular test case, they, they, they implanted this thing in, in animals uh, who had the following problem, that uh, the neurons to, that uh, fired in order to get the animal to stop eating when the animal was full didn't fire. So they, um, they implanted this device and were able to cause these animals' neurons to fire at the right time, uh, remotely. Um, and look, this is just the beginning. Um, <laughs> you're going to be able to buy one of these devices soon to um, keep yourself from eating too much. <laughs> New diet plan. That's Manipulation right. diet plan. That's right. <laughs> All right. Do, uh, do we want to say anything else about the 4-case argument, or are we ready to move on to the zygote argument? You got um, uh, let's see. So one thing I want to say about um, about the four-case argument is, look, um, you asked about cases, uh, responses that involve prime cases apart. So a uh, response that, say, says that in case one, the agent is not morally responsible, but in case two, the agent is. So Michael McKenna, and back in 2008, calls this a soft-line reply. But he himself advocates so-called hard-line reply, where you say that the... Um, where you say that the agent is morally responsible in all four cases, right? And so that has a certain advantage to the compatibilist because um, in all four cases, the agent satisfies all of the 
prominent or all of the known, all the plausible compatibilist conditions. So if you're a compatibilist, you're going to want the agent to be morally responsible in all four cases. So why not say that? Look, agent's morally responsible in all four cases. And look, you know, when I, um, I had this colleague back um, at Vermont when I was um, working on this back in the, in the 80s, in the late 80s. And um, so I, his name is George Scher, and you know George. You know, he's um, got a, a very nice book called In Praise of Blame, on stuff. Oh, yeah. And, um, That's so a great he, book. And so he said, you know, back in 1988, when I first gave him this paper uh, called Determinism al Dente, he said, well, you know, what I want to do is just take the cases backward. Look, it's intuitive that in case four, Plum is, is um, morally responsible. Like everybody agrees that ordinary Plum is morally responsible. Um, but there are no responsibility relevant differences between cases four and three. So we should judge that Plum is uh, morally responsible in case three. Same goes for cases three and two, and same goes for cases two and one. And so um, if your intuition is, and our intuition in fact is, that Plum is morally responsible in the ordinary case, case four, um, we should judge that Plum is um, morally responsible in case one as well. And I think that's a great challenge. It's taking the argument backward. So at this point, you know, the things get, things get really difficult. So um, Michael McKenna has a version of this challenge from 2008 in which he argues that the, um, like in the context of the free will debate, maybe your intuition about Plum in case four shouldn't be, if you're being fair, that Plum is clearly morally responsible, but rather something like, it's um, not clear that he isn't morally responsible. It's some more nuanced intuition. But whatever your intuition is, right? wherever your intuition is, it's going to transfer to case one, at least so McKenna argues, because there, because there are no responsibility-relevant differences between any two adjacent cases. Okay, so we went back and forth on this a, a bunch, and you can, uh, if you have him on your show sometime, you can ask him to um, justify his point of view, <laughs> which I'm sure he'll be happy to do. Um, one, one thing I want to say is that when you go backward through the cases, then perhaps... Uh, features that clarify moral responsibility, the nature of moral responsibility become evident to you. So you begin with case one and yeah, you think, okay, he's plum is morally responsible. Um, but, um, then once you see, as you go back through the cases that there's a, a pretty close analogy between manipulation and determination, maybe your sense that, um, plum is plum is uh, morally responsible or your more nuanced sense that it's not clear whether he's morally responsible um, will be affected right, by your assessment of the cases as you go backward. Okay? So that's my response to McKenna in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and move on to what's called the zygote argument now. Um, we've, uh, Alfred Mealy has this case of Diana and Ernie in his book, Free Will and Luck. And could you explain a little bit about what the zygote argument is and maybe how it's similar to the four case argument and how it's different than the four case argument? Okay. So nice thing about Al's argument is that um, it's like Taylor's or Richard Taylor's argument from the sixties and early seventies in that it involves just two cases. And uh, at least, um, you know, for some purposes, it's nice to have a kind of a simpler argument, one that involves just two as opposed to four cases. And so, his case is in some way similar to my case two, 
Um, although I, what I say in my case too is that um, you know Plum is manipulated from the beginning of his life, and so Al in his zygote argument makes it clear that uh, makes it clear that um, the manipulation takes place before the agent, okay, the agent is Ernie, comes into being. So in his view, Diana Agatis combines this zygotes, the atoms of a zygote, because she wants a certain event to occur 30 years later. And the event is an action, okay, that this guy Ernie, uh, who is, uh, who forms from the zygote, um, performs, okay? So, um, and from her knowledge of the state of the universe just before creating this zygote and the laws of nature uh, of her universe, which is deterministic, she can deduce that a zygote with precisely um, this constitution located in the Mother Mary will develop into an ideally self-controlled agent who satisfies all the compatibilist conditions on moral responsibility that performs a certain action 30 years later. So, um, so call this agent Ernie. So Ernie is the descendant of this zygote formed by Diana. And then you compare Ernie with Bernie and Bernie is, um, comes to be in the ordinary way, but is, um, otherwise identical with Ernie. So as he is as similar to, um, Ernie as a being can be. Um, who was formed ordinarily and not in the unusual way that Ernie was formed, and they perform the very same action. Okay? So it's our intuition that Bernie is morally responsible, perhaps, um, at least initially, but um, perhaps it's our intuition that Ernie is not morally responsible because of Ernie was formed, and somehow the compatibilist has to deal with this, with this, um, with this um, difference in intuition. And, um, you know, Mealy himself is an agnostic about whether compatibilism or incompatibilism is true. But if you're an incompatibilist, you might want to say, look, it's intuitive that Ernie is not morally responsible. And that judgment should carry over to Bernie um, because there is no morally respons- moral responsibility difference between Ernie and Bernie. Okay, so it's kind of like um, uh, my case, too. Um, it's um, very precisely specified. And, um, and, um, um, and it's just a two-case argument, um, which, at least for some purposes, is a valuable simplifying feature. Nice. And the replies are roughly the same. There can be soft line and hard line replies. So in this case... Uh, line, hard line replies. Yeah. i got to say, though, that... Um, look, I mean, here's one thing I want to say about the dialectic of manipulation arguments. Um, you know... I, you know I guess I think that philosophical arguments are not very often coercive, especially arguments from cases. So what you do in, in analytic, what we do in analytic philosophy is try to change the opponent's mind by providing them an example, like a manipulation case in the uh, in uh, the debate between incompatibilists and compatibilists. And the idea is to somehow change the opponent's mind by confronting the opponent with that case. Okay. Now, what's key? in uh, the manipulation argument is to get the, the opposition or the neutral party to have the intuition of non-responsibility in the manipulation case. Now, uh, the way I see it, it, it's not as if there's an argument that the, the compatibilist or the neutral party should have an intuition of non-responsibility in the manipulation case. I mean, it's purely a fishing expedition. You as an incompatible just hope that the compatibilist will have this intuition. 
Okay. Now, um, if we're going fishing, uh, what's the better way to start with um, with um, the Ernie case, or say my case two or my case one? And so my sense is that my sense is that um, the Zygo case. I mean, look, if it's successful in converting compatibilists, I'm happy with that result. <laughs> if it's if it's successful in convincing neutral parties, I'm also happy with that result. But at least for convinced compatibilists, I mean, you know, Leibniz was a compatibilist. And back in the day, like when, when um, I think philosophy was more theocentric uh, as it was in the, in the 17th and early 18th centuries when Leibniz um, did his philosophy, um, the standard sort of compatibilism was theological. And so as I explained earlier, um, um, Leibniz's God is a lot like Mealy's Diana, right? So Leibniz's God uh, sets us all up as, as he put it, spiritual automata at the beginning of our lives. So everything we do is a kind of a function of, of the program of that initially induced um, program. Okay. But um, so this is the standard sort of compatibilism. But look, I mean, people didn't say, oh, my goodness, you know, um, uh, everything that this agent does, or compatibilist didn't say, everything this agent does is determined by the initial program, so there's no way in which this agent is morally responsible. I mean, that was just the standard sort of compatibilism of the day. So um, I'm somewhat dubious as to whether compatibilists are going to have the non-responsibility intuition in the Diana case. I mean, some might, um, but I think it's much more likely that they'll have it in my case one, which involves... Yeah. Um, local manipulation, a manipulation at uh, the time of the action or just before the action occurs. I think that's much more threatening to one's ordinary intuitions of responsibility than um, the Leibniz case or the Zygote cases. I mean, to make it vivid, imagine a movie. Okay, who have a movie in which Plum, you know, performs this this um, this dastardly action? He kills White for egoistic reasons, perhaps he, because he wants the inheritance that White would otherwise get. Okay, and you see everything that happens in the ordinary way. And at the very end of the movie, it's revealed that there are neuroscientists who are manipulating Plum's brain so that uh, he would not have killed White had it not been for that, uh, for the remote control um, that the neuroscientists are exercising. I think a lot of people are going to have the intuition, even if they're initially compatibilists, um, that Plum isn't morally responsible in that situation. Whereas I don't know if that's the case for, um, I don't, I don't so I, I, you know, like I said, I think that I think that that the uh, case two or the um, the zygote case they're they're good manipulation cases, but my sense is that they're going to bring fewer people on board than than the uh, case one, the local manipulation cases. One response that has been recently defended by none other than Taylor Sear is that you could reformulate these kinds of manipulation cases with indeterministic manipulation. And so the worry for the defender of manipulation cases is that it's not the determination or the ter determinism that's doing the work of generating the intuition of non-responsibility, but it's the manipulation itself. How would you, how do you respond to these, this kind of argument or response? So I think that's a, I think that's a good response. Um, and that's one conclusion you can draw from that. So the idea is, Look, um, there are uh, deterministic manipulation cases. Um, maybe they generate the issue of non-responsibility. 
There are indeterministic manipulation cases. They could, for example, involve a manipulator who kind of spins a roulette wheel. And um, the result of the spinning of the roulette wheel just is the neural realization of the decision that the agent makes. Okay? Um, I think in both kinds of cases, or at least I would have non-responsibility intuitions. So you might say, well, so it's not, it's not determinism that that it's not determinism that's um, that explains the non-responsibility intuition. Rather, it's manipulation. Um, so my take on that is that um, that determinism and manip- and indeterminism of a certain sort um, are both sufficient for non-responsibility. So that's an alternative read of these cases. So I think that in the deterministic case, the agent is not responsible because there are factors beyond the agents of control that render his or her action inevitable. And um, I think that in indeterministic cases specified in the right way, um, the agent is not responsible because the agent doesn't and can't make a difference as to which of two possible Mm. actions occurs. So... And that's evident in the in the roulette case, <coughs> because suppose that the roulette wheel, if the roulette wheel uh, lands on um, number um, sixty-seven, um, Plum decides to kill, and if if it lands on sixty-eight, Plum does not decide to kill. Um, there, it's not the agent that's making the difference; it's the roulette wheel. And I think that. Uh, in at least certain kinds of indeterministic situations that don't involve manipulation, the same is true. Um, it doesn't make uh, what the there's nothing that the agent does or can do that makes a difference as to which action occurs. Okay, so I think those are two very distinct ways in which responsibility can be undermined, mm-hmm. and um, I think that there are kind of manipulative correlates, ways of setting up manipulation cases that correlate to those two ways in which more responsibility can un- be undermined. So um, I guess I have my explanation as well. I think that you know you have your explanation, namely it's the manipulation and mm-hmm. not the determination that's resulting in non-responsibility. I say um, determination can result in non-responsibility for one reason, namely that um, the action the agent performed is, is rendered inevitable by factors beyond his control. And indeterminism undermines responsibility for a different reason, namely this, that the agent is... Um, Agent. The crucial point is um, left out of the picture. Mm-hmm. The agent can't settle which whether the decision will occur or not. Very interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask about one other type of response to manipulation arguments, and this one is one that uh, our guest from the previous episode, Carolina Sartorio, develops at the end of her book, Causation and Free Will. And it's something like, I don't know if she calls it an error theory, but it's something like an error theory for our intuitions about manipulation cases. So she's a compatibilist and she wants to say that um, when, if we intuit that Plum is not morally responsible uh, for killing White, it's because we're thinking that someone else is morally responsible, namely the neuroscientists. Um, and that sort of diffuses our moral responsibility attributions towards Plum. Do you have any thoughts about that kind of case? Do you think it makes a difference whether there's another agent involved. I know you gave other cases where there isn't an agent involved, but do you think those that, I don't know, maybe that we could be misled by the existence of this other manipulating agent? Right. So what uh, Carolina Sartorio argues is this, that um, 
so in in these manipulation cases, so we don't want to say that Plum is 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 not responsible. We want to say that he is responsible, but um, it's going to be intuitive given certain um, unfortunate human predilections is that we're going to diminish his responsibility right. when there are other agents involved. So we have this tendency to, when there's more than one agent involved in the production of an action, to kind of spread the more responsibility around. Okay? So if a bad thing occurs and, um, and um, let's say, blame of uh, 10 units of blame are um, merited, and say there are 10 agents involved, then we have a tendency to attribute one unit of blame to each agent. Whereas in her view, what we should really do is, is um, at least if the conditions are right, to attribute 10 units of blame to each agent. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if blame gets diffused, even though we have a tendency to make that mistake. So in the manipulation case, if we have a manipulator and we have Plum, um, we tend to diffuse the responsibility between the manipulator and Plum, whereas we should really blame each fully and equally. Okay? Um, so I think that's interesting, and that's a, a nice suggestion as to what might be going on in these cases. So I want to say that in the in case one, it's not that, um, at least it's not my intuition that responsibility is diffused, so it's not as if I want to say that Plum is half responsible and the neuroscientist is half responsible mm -hmm. or some such thing. Rather, Plum isn't responsible at all. I mean, Plum has zero responsibility. So at least the intuition that I have in case one doesn't um, kind of fit Sark diagnosis. But if it did, I mean, if, if, if my thought were, hey, you know, Plum is responsible uh, in the basic dessert sense, but not as responsible as he would have been had he been the only agent um, on the scene, as in case four, the ordinary case. If that were my intuition, I think that that would um, lend significant credence to um, uh, Sartre's explanation. Mm -hmm. So some people make a distinction between different types of manipulation arguments as um, they say that yours is more of like an inference to the best explanation and other types are, don't, don't have that feature. Um, do you think that this makes a difference? How, how we characterize the argument or how the argument is structured? Well, I want to say that I think in that when you kind of really kind of press on the argument, any manipulation argument, it reveals itself as an argument to the best explanation. Okay, so you might so Al Mealy, um, in his when he sets out the when he sets out his Diana argument, he suggests that at least there's ways of conceiving the manipulation argument so that they don't involve the notion of best explanation. But I think that you can see that they involve the notion of best explanation as soon as you start raising objections. So consider the um, objection that you raised earlier, namely that look. Um, that the, the, the difference maker between case one and case two on the one hand and case four on the other is that case one and case two involve intentional determination or manipulation, whereas case four does not. Okay, so what is that? That's an alternative attempt to explain what's happening in this case, in these cases. Okay, so we've got my explanation, namely that... Um, What's going on here is that because causal determination is true in all four cases, the agent is not morally responsible in all four cases. Somebody else says, no, that's not what's happening. And the best way of explaining what's happening in these cases, in this manipulation argument, is that, um, is that um, intentional manipulation explains the intuition of non-responsibility, um, which leaves cases where there's no intentional manipulation 
um, free for the compatibilist, free for the responsibility judgment. Okay, so at this point, what we're doing is we're fighting about explanations of intuitions in the in this manipulation argument, right? Mm -hmm. So as soon as an objection gets raised, I think you're forced into best explanation strategy. Mm -hmm. Like who's got the best explanation of what's happening in these cases? Okay? So I guess that's why I want to say that, um, yeah, there are different ways of representing the dialectic of these arguments, but as soon as you get into these objections, you know, the soft line objections, maybe the hard line objections, um, we get into best explanation territory. Like who's got the best explanation for the intuitions in these cases? Okay, so um, I guess I want to say that at the at the deepest level, I mean, there are different ways of characterizing the dialectic of the argument. At the deepest level, um, the manipulation argument and all manipulation arguments are arguments to the best explanation. Well, thank you, Dirk. This was a very interesting discussion. Um, where can interested listeners go to follow your work? Um, so I've got uh, a, a website. Um, maybe you can uh, point the, the audience to my website somehow mm -hmm. with your very fancy 21st century technology. <laughs> um, and uh, so I've got, you mentioned the book I wrote with uh, Michael McKenna, but that's, a, that's an introduction to the entire debate since about 1960. Um, so that's from 2016. And I've got two books in which I develop my view one is called Living Without Free Will from Cambridge in 2001. And the second one is um, Free Will Agency and Meaning of Life, Oxford 2014. Um, so, and they've got lots of articles. But, I, you know, I, 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 I want to point you to that 2014 book uh, from Oxford as, um, as a, a, a statement of my view that I, that I um, will endorse and um, you know, I, I don't think my view has changed a whole lot since then, since 2014. I've got some articles that explain some of the arguments more carefully, mm -hmm. particularly the argument that I was suggesting against um, indeterminism, like certain kinds of indeterminism, um, being compatible with moral responsibility. So I've got some more recent stuff on that. Um, and I'm working on a new book, actually, on, on ethics, emotions, and free will. So it huh? explains how um, ethics and emotions work in a world without basic dessert, uh, without the control and action, i.e. the free will required for basic a uh, dessert attributions. So um, I'm hoping that book will show up in the next couple of years or so. Excellent. Looking forward to it, Dirk. Cool. Yeah. Oh, I guess we could mention we linked a book that John Fisher recommended in episode two called Four Views on Free Will. And Dirk, you're one of the contributors there defending your uh, skeptical position uh, in that book. So maybe we'll link that again as well. Excellent. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks again, Dirk, uh, for, for uh, joining us today. This was really fun. I love talking about manipulation arguments. And thanks, listeners, for tuning in. Our next episode will be on the topic of moral luck, another challenge to moral responsibility. And our guest will be Dana K. Nelkin, who's professor of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego. So stay tuned for that. Mm -hmm.